Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's I carry 23 great wounds all got in battle. 75 men have I killed with my own hands in battle. I scatter, I burn my enemies' tents, I take away their flocks and herds. The Turks pay me a golden treasure, yet I am poor, because I am a river to my people. Aouda Abu Tayyip, from the film Lawrence of Arabia. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia The Wars of the Reformation My name is Benjamin Jacobs and today's episode is Walking Tour Part 4A, The Beginnings of Eastern Europe. I hope you all enjoyed Travis Dow's guest episode as much as I did. As I said in the intro to that episode, I've had a heck of a month, and I thank you all for your patience in waiting so long between episodes. Apart from multiple unexpected life events, part of the reason for this long gap is that I found that I had enough material uh, for this week's episode to split it in two, which is why this is part 4A. I've also been working very hard on the website, wittenberg2westphalia.weebly.com. It may not look it quite yet, but I've been doing a lot of work on it. I now have a blog entry for every episode, and I've started to fill in the bibliography page. I've also been working to get myself set up with mapping software, also known as Geographic Information Systems, or GIS, so that I can begin making maps for each episode. GIS is something that I picked up as part of my day job, and it's a pretty powerful thing to understand, but requires a lot of computing power. And unfortunately, it turns out my computer has an unfixable error in its kernel, meaning my computer is less stable than I might hope. Long story short, one of these days... I'm going to rebuild my computer and make a million awesome maps, and in the interim I'm going to have a lot of fun with the bibliography page, so seriously, go check out the website, it's getting updated all the time. Today we're going to be talking about Eastern Europe. I know I said Russia at the end of the episode two episodes ago now, and while Russia is going to show up here, that was a bit of a mistake on my part, and kind of a serious one. Eastern Europe is way more than Russia. And, really, Russia isn't going to show up until the end of the next episode. As we discussed in our episode, What is a Europe?, Eastern Europe can be a fraught term, often used to exclude regions from the core, civilized areas of Europe. What the core part of Europe is, of course, depends on who you ask, but 
it should be noted that, as we saw last time, the cultural institutions that would eventually become Europe began in the Romanized West and spread outwards from there due to a variety of very localized processes. By 1300, these feudal institutions had penetrated far beyond the old Frankish core of the Holy Roman Empire and were often known by the name of Christendom, a name which, oddly enough, often excluded the Orthodox Christians of the East. This episode and the following one will bring us up to the year 1300, but today we're going to look at the deeper past of Eastern Europe. I'm doing this because it is less well known generally, and because in the class episode I gave a deep background of the Romanized part of Europe as opposed to the Eastern part of Europe which wasn't Romanized, so it's only fair that I give a deep background of that part of Europe as well, and of course because the stories are awesome and I want to. But before we dive into the region, first we need to define it. In the east, there are the Ural Mountains, which run north to south. At their southern end, the Ural River springs up and flows to the Caspian Sea. The Caucasus Mountains cross the narrow isthmus between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, and divide Eastern Europe from the Middle East. Across the Black Sea, the Danube River forms a huge delta as it meets the Black Sea, and if we go up the middle of the delta, we will run into the Carpathian Mountains before very long. The Carpathians here trace a tight arc from south to north, with its curve pointing east. At the top of the arc, the Vistula River rises, and flows out across a plain to the Baltic Sea, forming kind of a bulge to the west. If we go northeast across the Baltic, we find the southern border of Scandinavia that we discussed two episodes ago, uh, three episodes ago, the Neva River system. If we follow this system east, we will eventually find the White Sea, which itself is part of the Arctic Ocean, if we're being honest. If we move east across the Arctic Ocean, we'll meet back up with the Urals, thus bringing us back full circle. This area has a pretty complex shape, but if you want to think of it as a big rectangle with a little bulge in the top left-hand corner, that's just fine by me. Just remember that the Baltic is in the northwest, the Black Sea in the southwest, and the Caspian Sea in the southeast. Ironically, given the human history of the region, which is quite chaotic, this area is geographically one of the most common tranquil areas we have addressed. The majority of the area described is part of the Baltica mini-plate, which, as I said in the episode What is a Europe, has been quietly fused to the Asian Kazakh plate since the primordial history of the planet. This is less true in the south, where the Arabian Plate's impact with the Eurasian landmass has driven up a great number of mountain chains, the Caucasus Mountains amongst them. But by and large, the vast, flat expanse of the European alluvial plain defines most of the land of this area. From an external perspective, the vast, flat expanses of Eastern Europe presented a huge challenge to those attempting to bring civilization in from the outside. Middle Eastern polities trying to expand north would have confronted line after line of mountain ranges in the Iranian plateau, before confronting the water barriers of the Black Sea and the Caspian, the Caucasus Mountains, and the deserts of Central Asia. It's worth noting here that most of the empires of antiquity were Middle Eastern in origin. Most empire builders reached this point and stopped, but those that pushed further would confront the Russian steppes, and a similar situation to that presented in Ireland. With a land largely impossible to compartmentalize, one would need to impose their will politically on huge swaths of territory in order to reach boundaries that could be consolidated. Most empires did not have the resources to bridge those kinds of distances. That said, there is more to this wide region than the fact that there were no mountains. 
The region can be geographically subcategorized by ecoregion, drainage basin, and human geography. In the large, uninterrupted expanses of Eastern Europe, the generalized patterns of the climate interact with the forces of life to create a geography all their own, in a way that they cannot in areas where physical features create microclimates. So in places where there are mountains, the mountains can interrupt the atmospheric air currents and cause rain to fall, even if the land would otherwise be dry. In Eastern Europe, there are no mountains, so however dry, wet, hot or cold the climate wants things to be, that's how it is. And this is largely defined by proximity to the poles and the great uh, stratospheric air currents such as the jet stream. Both these forces, for their own reasons, are going to tend to set up east-west bands of similar climate. In general, the north has a climate that is cool and moist enough to allow the growth of huge forests, rich in natural resources and wildlife. In the south, there's not enough precipitation to support forests, but there are endless rolling grasslands with fertile topsoil, tailor-made for farming or grazing or what have you. This is the landscape we most associate with Russia, but it's also very similar to the Great Plains of North America in landform and ecology. The line between the forest and the grass is not a hard one, and it has been blurred by the hands of man, but if you start at the point where the Vistula falls from the Carpathian Mountains, and draw a line to the city of Kiev, and then continue to the Urals, this is roughly the line that originally divided the grass from the trees. Big grasslands like the steppes were potentially deadly places for the first human societies. Animals were large and hard to kill, water hard to find, and the vast majority of the plants were inedible. Early farming was the first alteration in human lifestyle to change this calculus, and it was quite profitable here due to the vast tracts of fertile, well-watered soil. But farmers had to kill the native grasses and plants on their own, a labor-intensive process that could be disrupted by anything from bad luck to bad weather. And in a time before fertilizer, one never knew how long the soil would remain friendly. And of course, farmers would have to remain stationary, which could make them vulnerable on a steppe with no natural defenses. Things changed with the domestication of animals. The exact sequence of events isn't clear. Certainly, the domestication of livestock gave farmers a potentially more varied diet and access to fertilizer, but it also called into question the whole need for farming anyway. Pastoralists, who subsist mainly on products of domesticated animals, were able to profit from the native grasses almost directly, as the herds converted the grasses directly into food, either in terms of meat or in terms of secondary products like milk or blood. There was no need for plowing and sowing and weeding, and if things got dangerous or the grass gave out, you could just move your herd. This lifestyle was semi-nomadic, based on seasons usually, as the herdsmen moved from pasture to pasture with their flocks to prevent overgrazing. Their diet could be supplemented by vegetables that could be grown or gathered by those not directly engaged in herding, but they did not need to be. Whether it was a reaction to these conditions or a previously existing cultural proclivity, the people of the steppes formed strictly hierarchical, often militaristic societies very early on. And no matter the cultural or linguistic identity, this remained a feature of steppe lifestyle. So early on they would have been Indo-Europeans, later they called themselves Mongols or Huns or Turks. Whatever they called themselves, and whatever language they may have spoken at a given time, they often practiced the same lifestyle. In the forests of the north, a similar and yet distinct lifestyle existed. 
hunting and gathering persisted in the north for quite a long time, as forest environments are ideal for such a means of living. Forest game would be hunted and supplemented by fruit, nuts, and vegetables that could be gathered, and fish that could be caught in the streams. Gradually, this lifestyle was influenced by changing technology, as metal and agriculture penetrated the forests, but the thick woods of the north were difficult to clear for farming. Even with metal axes, it can take months of work to clear a field for farming. And even once that's done, the soil may not support the activity of farming long-term without any understanding of fertilizer. On the other hand, burning the woods would convert the nutrients of the living vegetation directly into fertilizer. The land would not sustain farming forever, but using this method of clearing and farming the land, people of the woods could get a good decade of farming out of a patch of land before the soil would give out. Given that the woods initially supported pretty low densities of people, it was easy enough, after a decade, to move on to a new patch of ground. The agricultural diet would be supplemented by fruits, nuts, game, and fish taken from the fallow areas around their farmed patch. The people who practiced this kind of lifestyle would have no need to engage in large-scale military activity, and the landscape favored defensive tactics by people with home ground advantage. And so political organization was often lax. They should not be thought of as peaceful savages, though. There's plenty of evidence of large-scale internal feuding and continual raids and counter-raids for trade goods, and more about that in a minute. Nonetheless, the tribal social organization that had served for the hunter-gatherers continued to work pretty well for the new semi-nomads, and they were notoriously hard to persuade of the advantages of more structured societies. Many people practiced this kind of lifestyle, Notably the Finns, who we've already mentioned in Scandinavia, but who had a homeland that stretched all the way to the Ural Mountains. There were the Balts as well. They were a group of indigenous people in the southern shores of the Baltic Sea, oddly enough. But the group that would become most famous for this kind of lifestyle originated in the Primpit Marshes, or Primpiet Marshes, depending on what you speak, named for a tributary of the Dnieper, that is to the north of Kiev. From here, the Slavs spread through the forested regions of Europe in every direction, starting about the year 500 AD. In modern times, most of Eastern Europe, and much of Central Europe and the Balkans, speak Slavonic languages. The people of these regions should not be thought of as living isolated lives in a state of nature. The eco-regions of Eastern European Russia set up broad east-west bands of similar habitat, and in prehistoric times, archaeology tells us that there was a tendency for cultures to expand in the east-west region in which they were born. In the steppes, this also created an east-west trade route that operated, essentially, from time immemorial until quite recently. Those who are fond of a product called Russian tea are enjoying a product of this trade route. Traditionally, this tea was a hodgepodge of teas purchased by Siberian nomads from northern China, and then taken on the long, arduous caravan route through the temperate steppe into European Russia, and indeed, some still is taken on this route, as connoisseurs insist that the tea taken on this journey has enhanced qualities over other tea. One key terminus of this trade route was Kiev, although from here it did continue on to the west. The tea is delicious, but in its day, that was not the most important product of the route. In its day, it carried silk, spices, gold, ivory, and manufactured or artistic objects in return for forest good weapons and slaves. 
the place of trade in the traditional societies of Eastern Europe should not be thought of in modern terms, where the goal is the acquisition of the most stuff before the inevitable curtain of death rings down, rendering all worldly possessions superfluous. Rather, these were nomadic agricultural societies. While humans will always have a need for beauty, luxury, and novelty in their lives, heavy items like anvils or TVs would have been impractical to transport during the decadal or seasonal moves that are such a major part of the very temporary existence of nomadic peoples. Instead, trade would have been for necessities that a given household could not produce for themselves, like metal tools or medical services, or else for the purpose of ensuring that there was always a buffer between one's family and starvation. In the absence of a fixed currency, having a bolt of silk cloth that you could trade for cereals in, in an emergency could be the difference between life and death. For the steppe peoples and forest dwellers alike, trading for cereals and other foodstuffs for more settled peoples thus became an important part of their expected economic existence, if not something that they did on a very regular basis. In the historical record, the acquisition by nomadic peoples of material goods that they seemingly didn't need or use was often perceived by the settled peoples who wrote the records as greed. Needless to say, the nomadic people wouldn't have seen it that way. At least some of the items necessary for day-to-day -day existence would have been produced regionally. So if not in the household or in the village, at some town that was within a couple hundred miles. In the steppes, this would happen in the few permanent settlements that dotted the land along rivers or near areas with easily accessible natural resources or, you know, religious sites or things like that. The semi-nomads of the woods seem to have had settlements in similarly ideal locations that may or may not have been permanent. In both cases, the ability of these settlements to grow was pretty limited. Partly this was a security issue. The records show that Kiev, for example, even after it was pretty well established as a settlement, was sacked or besieged five times between 960 and 1230, which is kind of a lot given that four of those sieges were successful. Settlements from before 960 would have been even more vulnerable to local power politics. There also may have been a certain lack of ability to ship enough food to these cities to give them a surplus population, and it's also possible that the political organization just wasn't there. Whatever the cause, there is no record of anything bigger than a small town in the woods, and while cities did grow in the steppes, they were often wiped away due to the unstable political situation. Since documentary evidence can sometimes be scanty, some examples of similar societies may help us to picture the role of trade in these, you know, societies. The quote for today's episode from the movie Lawrence of Arabia is a view into the role of material goods in the horse warrior tribes of Arabia as late as World War I. For Auda Abu Tai, the semi-mercenary leader of a powerful horse tribe, Honor comes from warfare, and loyalty comes from distributing material wealth to his followers. These followers, in turn, would have used these goods to survive, either by eating or directly using such goods as had value for a desert nomad, or else by trading them for things that would have value. From a social perspective, this makes the tribe stronger, because more people survive. Auda gets his material wealth either by fighting, or as a tribute from settled authorities, in this case the Turks. Of course, this speech was written by an American for a movie, but it is based on the testimony of Lawrence. The speech is kind of cobbled together from lines from his Seven Pillars of Wisdom. 
And Lawrence was quoting or paraphrasing local stories about Auda Abutai, who was a friend of his. Lawrence had no reason to lie, and actually was a historian, so chalk that up to his credit. This is one of my favorite movies ever, and it's actually being read by one of my favorite people ever. Lou Mahmood was a college buddy of mine, and he actually sent me five or six different versions of this, which are pretty much all great. So, thanks again, Lou, you did a great job. A more concretely historical example is the role trade played in Native American societies. In his book, Crucible of War, Fred Anderson describes how ritual forms of grieving based on gift-giving replaced the blood feud in traditional Iroquois society under the mediation of chiefs. This was similar to the Wehrguild system of the Germans in the early Middle Ages, but with the rather important difference that the chief was generally unable to compel adherence to the law, only persuade. In this context, the chief often had to use his own material goods to obtain agreement, meaning the acquisition of material goods for the chief could ensure social harmony and prevent civil war, and so diplomatic or political contacts within the tribe often came with gifts from the more powerful figure to the lesser figure as a way to help ensure loyalty and grease the course of justice within the tribe and keep things together. Within this context, contact with the Europeans gradually became a rather addictive crutch due to their ability to just continually spawn out more and more material goods. Eventually, trade and diplomatic gifts from the Europeans became the basis of political stability within the tribes, to the detriment of their political independence and environmental sustainability. For the steppe peoples, a similar pattern would have existed. The outline of this system can be seen in any good history of China, actually. Today I'm using John Kie's A History of China, um, but with reference to many others. That's just the one I have on hand today. Local political figures would use material goods to secure their position within the extremely warlike social structure of the steppes, either by giving food directly or by gifts to their followers, which would in turn be traded with nearby settled peoples. This system was reinforced through gifts to lower-level political figures from higher-level political figures, culminating with a king figure, or a khan, who in turn received gifts from the Chinese empire to the south. This political system is generally described as a khanate. Much of the raiding done by the steppe nomads on the Chinese was intended to keep on the pressure just to keep this tribute coming. At the same time, a trade system within the northern regions would have pertained, with horses, slaves, and raw materials, cured from hunting, gathering, and warfare, being traded with settled peoples to the south for things like tea, food, or manufactured goods. Trade would have also gone on with the nomadic hunter-gatherer woodland people to the north for hides, ivory, or other natural resources that also could be traded on to the south later. Needless to say, the political powers that be would get a cut of whatever trade was going on. In Eastern Europe, a very similar trade structure would have existed, but at the beginning of the Middle Ages, it would have switched into high gear and become very intensive. As the Roman Empire fell and the trade networks of the West fell into a state of collapse, the expanses of Eastern Europe became highways of trade. At first, the overland portions of this trade system were the most prominent with a huge trade in slaves going on, but gradually traders in road vessels began to use the great rivers of Eastern Europe, setting up a very dense trade network covering the entire region. 
Since the oceans here generally lie to the north or to the south, the rivers generally flow to the north or the south, introducing a trade network based on the drainage basins that was perpendicular to the cultural strata of the regions. In other words, many of the rivers brought trade from the forests of the north to the grasslands of the south and then to the sea. In the southern portions of eastern Europe, there are four great rivers that drain into the Black Sea and two great rivers that drain into the Caspian. From the west to the east, they have the Dniester, the Bug, the Dnieper, and the Don flowing into the Black Sea, and the Volga and the Ural rivers drain into the Caspian Sea. All have had an importance in trade in their own way, but the Dnieper and the Volga dwarf the rest in impact. The Dnieper rises in an area called the Valdai Hills, an area of low uplands formed by a glacial moraine located between the modern cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg. These are hills when you live in Russia, which is just completely flat, and to the rest of us they would be mild uplands, but anyway. From these hills, the Dnieper flows more or less due south, originally passing over seven cataracts before finding its way to the Black Sea. About halfway down its length, near the area where the forests give way to the grasslands, the city of Kiev was founded sometime between the year 900 and the year 1000. The Volga is a much more complex river. The main stream also rises in the Valdai Hills, but flows more or less east through the various lakes of the woodlands of the north for about 900 miles until it meets its first major tributary, the Oka, which also rises in the Valdai Hills very near the modern city of Smolensk. From here the Volga flows east for a few hundred miles before meeting the Kama. The Kama is another huge river, draining a large area of the north, and at this intersection the city of Bulkar was founded. Here the Volga begins to pass out onto the grassland as it begins to wind its way to the south. After about a thousand miles, it comes within 30 miles of the river Don, actually, itself an important waterway that flows into the Black Sea. But then both rivers veer apart, separated by some northern foothills of the Caucasus Mountains. The Don veers west and empties into the Black Sea, while the Volga veers east and empties into the Caspian Sea. Today, the Caspian may seem like an uninteresting place for international trade, given that it's completely landlocked, but in the early Middle Ages, the Abbasid Caliphate held substantial portions of the southern shores, and the Abbasids were an empire on the rise. Furthermore, the Caspian shores were a key destination of the Silk Road, being one of the few bits of water in the Central Asian deserts. In the north, there are no rivers as mighty as the Dnieper or the Volga, Instead, there's a strip of land extending from the eastern shore of the Baltic and running northeast between the Valdai Hills and the Neva River that is just one gigantic labyrinth of lakes and navigable rivers. The landscape is very similar to that which we saw in southern Finland, but with even less in the way of hills and mountains. I think the best comparison for Western listeners might be the forests of central and northern Canada, where the French voyageurs were able to explore thousands of miles of terrain while simultaneously hauling literal tons of cargo by canoe. Given this terrain, traders could acquire goods from northern Europe and the Baltic and sail up the river Duna to the Valdai Hills and then take the choice of destination, essentially. Alternatively, they could sail up the Gulf of Finland to the River Neva, and the border of Scandinavia we mentioned a few episodes back, and then make their way south through the tributaries and lakes to the Volga.
From there they could go downriver and trade with the Caliphate to the east, or go upriver and portage their boats to the Dnieper and sail downriver to the Black Sea and ultimately to Constantinople. Initially, the eastern route was more popular, leading to the early importance of the city Bulgar in the Khanate of Volga, Bulgaria. This Khanate or kingdom was settled by a group intimately related to the Bulgarians who would eventually make their name on the Balkan Peninsula. There's unfortunately almost no documentary evidence on this kingdom, although I reserve the right to come back to them in a later episode if I find some. Any of you who want to learn more about Bulgaria would do well to check out the History of Bulgaria podcast, which is pretty awesome. But unfortunately, even Eric Halsey skims over this period. It's not his fault, there just really isn't much to go on. In any case, the Bulgar Khanate does make an important point in our story. The steppe people of the south would occasionally move into the northern wooded areas and set up kingdoms, presumably as a ruling cl class over the Slavic or Finnic natives, which did have some cultural persistence, apparently. And these could last a pretty long time. The Bulgar Khanate lasted from around the year 660 to the year 1230, which kind of begs a couple questions. Did these steppe warriors continue to try and use their horses in warfare? which means they must have imported them, because you can't really raise a horse in the woods. But then, if they didn't, they must have tried to integrate their political organization from the south with the lifestyle and technology of the north, which would be pretty cool. But anyway, the Bulkers were not alone. The Penchings and many other groups moved from the south to the north, but most were just absorbed into the local tribal cultures. The Bulkers are pretty unique in their persistence. Over time, the Abbasid Caliphate gradually came apart, and it became a less attractive destination in and of itself. Simultaneously, Constantinople remained important, and became a regional nexus for international trade. A northern trader who reached the city would pay a transit fee to the emperor, and then would have a wide choice of ultimate destinations because of the many rivers that flowed into the Black Sea. Many would have just stopped at the city itself, of course, but others would seek to sell their wares at other point, ports on the Black Sea. Some would ultimately still choose to take their goods east, up the Don, back over to the Volga and down to the Caspian, but others would have gone west, either into the Mediterranean, or up the Bug or Danube, where they could trade with Central European kingdoms, or up any of the other rivers that flowed into the Caspian or the Black Sea. All of them traded with somewhere, and trade was good, if you're a trader. We should probably not assume that any given individual would have engaged in every leg of this enterprise. The majority of traders probably brought their goods to the city, if that far actually, took their profit and went home, leaving the next merchant the task of taking the goods out to the Caspian or down to the Mediterranean or wherever. But our sources do contain plenty of evidence of both kinds of trading, both trading in stages and trading where one individual comes up from the Baltic and ends up who, who knows where down in the Black Sea. This is sort of what one would expect from a well-developed trade network, which is exactly what this was. So who were these traders? They should be famous, since they were apparently engaged in the Herculean feat of basically sailing across Eurasia, from the Baltic to the Mediterranean. Well, they had many names. The Arabs, who met them first, called them the Rus, a word apparently related to rowing. In Constantinople, they were called the Varengians, and were valued not just as merchants, but as mercenaries. 
The person had to be tough to fight his way through the chaos of the Eurasian steppe and the northern woods, and so they were often hired to form the emperor's bodyguard. The fact that they were foreigners and therefore not involved in Byzantine court politics seems to have been a factor as well. Either way, they were renowned for fighting with huge double-handed battle axes. In Central Europe, they were sometimes known as the Ascomani or the Dene by the Germans, or the Lochlanach by the Irish in Western Europe. But of course, we know them by another name. We've already met them. They're called the Vikings. Now, the role the Vikings played in the beginnings of Eastern Europe has been a much debated topic. Russian nationalists have long contended that the Normans were just passing through, that their impact was purely transitory, and that Russia is and has always been purely a Slavic empire, and in fact the purest of the Slavic homelands. This anti-Norman theory directly contradicts some of the founding mythology of Russia, even, and is the minority opinion these days. Its prominence tends to rise and fall with the prominence of nationalism in Moscow, and as such is somewhat highly suspect. But there is actually some substance to the theory, if, if only as a skeptical alternative to keep the mainstream theory honest. The alternative is called the Normanist line. And that's the majority opinion among modern scholars, and is based on a combination of legend, documentary record, and archaeological evidence. I tend towards the Normanist position, as it is the majority opinion. But we do need to recognize that it is not a slam dunk. Documentary evidence is scanty, and the archaeological record is not definitive. What we have, though, is tantalizing. There are runic inscriptions that have been found in Athens, of all places, that date to this period, clear evidence of some kind of Scandinavian travel to the Mediterranean. There are Indian Buddhas that have been found in grave sites in Scandinavia, along with Byzantine, Arab, and Frankish coins. Clearly there were trade routes going all through Eastern Europe, and even to the West, and at least some sort of travel. There are also a few tantalizing pieces of documentary evidence from Byzantine and Arab sources. One of the most commonly cited sources is something called the Primary Chronicle, which unfortunately was written in the 12th century. So, many years after the fact, and actually much of what's in there could probably be best described as legend. There are also Islamic sources such as Ibn Hokal, Muhammad al-Idrisi, and Ahmad ibn Fadian, who for whatever reason uh, were sent as ambassadors up into this region by the caliphates. Their testimony is of course the most valuable, because they were actually physically there, but they have some of the same problems that some of the other primary sources do, in that their understanding of the local culture is somewhat, you know, all over the place. There are Byzantine sources. There are a number of sources that just talk about the general daily life of the Varangians, whoever they are, in the court in Byzantium. Uh, and they are kind of a hodgepodge group whose ethnic character shifts over time, so we do need to recognize that. But there were a few diplomats who were sent up who may help us uh, describe, uh, describe the ethnic makeup of the region, so we do have that as source material. And then we have several annals from the West. Of course, they would have had even less direct contact with the people in the Eastern European steppes. So it, it all needs to be taken with a grain of salt. There's a lot of really fascinating material out there about the subject. Uh, I do encourage you to try and 
look it up. Uh, I don't have any one source to point you to, unfortunately. If I did, I probably would have done a better job with this section, but the fact that there wasn't any one source out there was part of the reason I felt the need to actually do it. This is a podcast about early modern Europe, right? Anyway, um, so I'm not going to go into a much deeper look at... I just wanted you to know what was out there. Time is a factor now, so let's move on. So I'm just going to try and paint a picture of the narrative that we think happened according to the majority Normanist position, given all the huge caveats that I've just given you. We really can't know what first drew the Vikings into the woods of the east, but in all likelihood they were just raiding or trading for the same kind of produce they sought all around the Baltic. Hides, lumber, slaves, amber... As they went deeper and deeper into the woods, they would have interacted with the local populations and learned more and more of the extensive waterways to the east and the south, and eventually made their way to the Dnieper and the Volga river systems. It's worth noting here that the entire area between the Neva River and the Volga's turn to the south at Bulgar was probably Finnic at this time. So a Viking from Sweden, say, who was right across the Baltic Sea from Finland, would only need to learn one language to make his way across half of the north-south distance across the continent. It has even been suggested that Finnic traders were the actual carriers of most of the goods. There's at least one piece of documentary evidence to support this, though it does seem to contradict the image we have of the Finns later on in history. Either way, as time goes on, there is a growing preponderance of Nordic Scandinavian items, particularly along the Dnieper. This would actually go along with the narrative we've already discussed. Early on, trading favored the eastern route through Bulgar, which gave heavy access to Finnic speakers. Eventually, something happened, possibly the, the, the demise of the Abbasid Caliphate, possibly something else. Eventually, the trade route shifted in favor of the western route, which may have coincided with the increasing prominence of Nordic traders in this trade. Of course, either route had obstacles. Even for the Vikings, it's impossible to sail thousands of miles without getting out of the boat for potty breaks and to get food. And there were places in both routes where the crews would need to portage the boats by cutting down logs and using them as rollers to move the boats between navigable waterways. During these times, the crews would be vulnerable to attack, and so some sort of understanding would have had to have been made between the traders and the locals. What form this took is hard to discern nowadays. There is some evidence. But as always with the Vikings, we're pretty sure that there was a mixture of diplomacy, uh, peaceful trade, and opportunistic attack. A way to look at this is contained in the Primary Chronicle that book of possibly legendary tales about the founding of Russia. This legend says that a man named Rurik, along with his brothers, was invited to the area in northern eastern Europe by the heterogeneous native peoples to be king and thereby establish peace. Together, he and his brothers founded the city of Novgorod at one of the important portage ways in the labyrinth of waterways to the north. Later, one of Rurik's men uh, went on pilgrimage to Constantinople, and along the way uh, just kind of conquered Kiev in much the same way you or I would stop at a rest stop. Rurik eventually took possession of the city and moved his seat of power there, becoming the first king of what would become known as the Kievan Rus. 
The reality behind this legend has to be kind of teased out from the archaeological records and the records written by Arabs and Byzantine thousands of miles away, both literally and culturally. We've discussed how there were Slavic settlements scattered throughout the north, and to a lesser extent the south, long before the Varangians arrived, but it seems that the Vikings turned some of these settlements at opportune places into defensively walled large towns whose prosperity was directly linked to the trade network. As such, the Vikings can be credited with the creation of the first cities in the east, just as they are in Ireland. There's a couple pieces of evidence that make this sequence of events interesting. There wasn't a whole lot of urban culture in Scandinavia, and the stuff that developed developed around military camps. Those military camps tended to use the Roman military foot very exactly as their standard unit of measure. We know this because we have found the foundations of these camps in archaeological digs. The Roman military foot as a unit of measure could have become accessible to the Scandinavians through interactions with the West, maybe, but also would have been accessible for those who had served in the Varangian Guard and would have maybe gotten an understanding of architecture and defensive fortification that way. That also may have given them an understanding of and appreciation of uh, urban culture. There also were uh, cities, walled cities, and urban cities that existed on the southern Balt-inhabited shore of the Baltic Sea. So that's another possible source of urban culture, but the presence of the Roman military foot is particularly interesting, particularly given the cultural influence that Byzantium is going to have over the Rus that we're going to see in the next episode. For now, just keep this in mind. Regardless of the exact sequence of events that cre caused the creation of these urban settlements, the interaction of these settlements with the Slavs around them probably functioned on a case-by-case -case basis. But given what we know about the Vikings, we should probably not assume that they were either entirely peaceful nor entirely hostile. The trade in slaves and the constant demand for more goods should indicate a certain domineering extractive social order. On the other hand, they would not have lasted long as completely isolated outposts in a sea of hostile Slavs and horse people without some form of friendly relations. It may be instructive to look at the way the Norman French came in initially as pillagers and raiders, but once they were established, thanks to Louis the Simple, I love that name, they became established as settlers and they quickly integrated into friendly relations with their neighbors. A similar pattern obtained in the Northumbrian region of England, which was conquered by the Vikings for several hundred years. If the Vikings had no qualms about attacking strangers when it seemed profitable, they also seemed to have been somewhat likable as neighbors. It is very likely that there were different groups of Vikings. Some of them were settlers, some of them were opportunistic take-your-stuffers. In either case, between the years 700 and 1000, a... Varangian-Slavic hybrid called the Rus had developed in the Eastern European plains and forests. What this meant culturally, we're going to look at more next time. But for now, let's take a quick look around at what we've covered today and what this would look like on a map. Today we've introduced Eastern Europe, between the Arctic Sea, the Ural Mountains, the Black and Caspian Seas, and the Carpathian Mountains. 
In the north is a gigantic forest, full of peoples, principally but not exclusively Slavic, who practiced a semi-nomadic slash-and-burn agriculture. To the south are the Great Steppes. Though some agriculture happened, most of its inhabitants are fierce horse nomads of diverse identities who live as pastoralists. The rivers of the region form great north-south commercial corridors, which, along with the caravan routes across the steppes, tie the region into international trade networks in order to secure material goods to solidify political bonds and aid survival. Down these rivers, the Varengians, a branch of the Vikings, sailed their long boats. They helped bring urban culture to the region, and by hybridizing with the locals, helped establish the Rus. In this episode, I have traced very broadly the cultural development of the core part of Central Europe up to the year 1000 or so. Next episode, I'm going to flesh out this map and bring us up to the year 1300. There's going to be Crusades, the rise and fall of the Rus, the fate of the Khazars, and the importance of Eastern Orthodoxy. And, of course, the end of the world. It's going to be a great episode, and I really can't wait to get to it. I will see you all next time as we complete the story of Eastern Europe. But, in the meantime, I'd like to, again, thank Louis Mahmoud, my buddy, for doing the intro and being a great guy. His lovely wife Maureen is expecting twins in May, which is insane. And as always, not a surf for letting me use the intro and outro music. And here's the outro music, you guys, so see you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.